welcome everybody to a brand new series of podcasts uh, and they're going to be called How to Make a Game with Auric Digital. Uh, my name is Matt Davis, I am the Marketing and Community Manager here at Auric Digital and I'm joined by my partner in crime. Uh, another Matt actually, uh, sh- shall I call myself Matthew so we can kind of distinguish ourselves? Did you have or, a formal... <laughs> or should we leave it up to the beautiful tones of our voices so that people can distinguish it that way? I like it, yes, see which one you have. I do feel you've got the better voice for radio. Really? Oh, <laughs> yes. well, well, thank you very much. Uh, my name's Matt, aka Matthew Walker, uh, I'm a sound designer and composer. Thank you very much. And today we are joined by a special guest here on our first episode. So if you'd like to do your introduction. Uh, So yes, so my name's uh, Thomas Rawlings and I am the design and production director here at Auric Digital. Uh, Well, thanks for having me on. um, Thank you for being here. Yeah. Uh, in this uh, August 1st uh, of the new series, so that's exciting. I was going to say, it has been a very wet and blustery start to today. This has been a very interesting... Uh, that interesting was a challenge start. for me this morning, walking in with like three bags of gear, thinking, oh, just one day when I have to carry gear, I just don't don't, don't open for me, come on. And this is, see, there's all the spoilers behind the scenes. Everybody else knows, you just hear the crystal clear voices from us, but unless wow. you're watching us on YouTube, then you won't be able to see the mayhem that goes into yeah, this. Yeah, and, and also, if you hear other voices in the, in the room next door to us, they're doing... Uh, they're doing a production meeting about Dark Future. So if people start yelling and screaming, then... <laughs> That's good stuff. <laughs> well, no, it might be it's really bad. It might be like, oh, no, we need to get involved in this because something's gone really wrong. Are you saying that, we, that there might be potential for us splitting up some fisticuffs? Has <laughs> yeah. that ever happened yeah, in the meet before? I don't know. Well, I've been worried about people table flipping over certain <laughs> design rules. I don't like this right. idea. Yeah. Well, um, Tom and I had an interesting one the other day, which was the uh, the break call night that interrupted our stream on uh, Call of Duty: oh, yeah, The down, Wasted Land. Downstairs, yeah, in the office downstairs. <laughs> which, yeah. we, I reckon that might be the first ever uh, break call entranceway breaking of a, of a stream that I've heard of anyway. That I've, right. I've heard of swatting. Maybe it's the new trend. <laughs> Instead of swatting, you can break core an event. <laughs> did you did you hear it when you when we listened back? Because uh, I, I could hear it, but you know, you get that thing where you think it's really loud, but whether or not the mic's picking up. Not really. You could hear the reverberations of things more than you could hear the actual sounds of stuff. Like you could hear the floors going more mm. than you could actually hear the break core. But anyway, this isn't how to make a break core event with Oric Digital. <laughs> no. This is how to make a game with Oric Digital. Whole other so, series, so that man. is a whole other, a whole series, other so. series. Okay, right. First question though got to ask the most important one and the most and often the most difficult one i would like to know and i'll i'll come to you first matthew uh what's your favorite video game of all time i I know i'm asking the tough questions it's actually not that difficult i could give you five wow in in no particular order Mm. um uh well number one without a shadow final fantasy 7 that's what got me into game audio game music the Uh, second best final fantasy in many views (laughs) okay that's also another series uh for a podcast yeah final fantasy 7 as a soundtrack just blew my mind it was the first soundtrack i ever listened to in the game where i I genuinely took notice there were themes motifs it was it was gritty it was dark it's beautiful and it's just amazing uh i think mario 64 was on there um Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the NES. That was the first game <laughs> I ever played. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, and I remember picking up the NES pad and being like, okay, button, uh, 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 literally not having that coordination. <laughs> and that was amazing. But interestingly, um, for that me... that with the pizza truck? The, yeah. There was a bit with the pizza truck and you yeah, had to fire yeah, yeah. out the pizzas. There was like a top-down map and then you'd go into the sewers and stuff. It's yeah, known yeah, for yeah, being ridiculously yeah. hard. <laughs> but interestingly, you know when you have like a list of your, your best games ever, mm. you kind of think it's, it's impenetrable. It's like bulletproof, yeah? Because most of those come from your childhood maybe. Yeah. But that ch- all changed when XCOM 2 came out a few years ago. That just... It, at that precise moment in time, like I was, I was getting not bored of games, but I was thinking, I need something new. Mm. I need something new. 
And XCOM came along, and this, this word XCOM was kind of flowing around the office. I was yeah. like, what is this thing? Is it like some weird meme? I don't know what it means. <laughs> then I played it, gave it a go, and got my behind handed to me many, many times. <laughs> but it's just everything I want in a game. So if it wasn't for nostalgia, I think XCOM 2, uh, the, the kind of remake, uh, would be probably number one. Wow. But nostalgia is so strong for those other games that it's probably like a number three or something. Wow, fair enough. Well, that's comprehensive. Thomas, can you do better than that? <laughs> uh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to go... It, it's, it's very difficult. I, I think it's very good, Matthew, that you're willing to kind of change your list because you're right, nostalgia can be quite a, a crystallizing force. I think it was when, when Blizzard were working on Diablo three i think it was controversial topic yeah (laughs) one of of the producers uh was was i was reading the interview with them they said we're not competing with what diablo or diablo 2 was we're competing with what people's memories of diablo and Mm. diablo 2 were that's tough and exactly i think nostalgia adds a layer of complexity should we say to when you're looking back on stuff so but that said i am so i will pick a favorite game uh one of my favorite games uh and i will uh it is going to be a slightly nostalgic one so uh, the game Dune 2, The Battle for Arrakis, um, is a fantastic game. It's, it's, yes, it's a, an IP game, as in intellectual property game, based on the Dune novels. Um, but it's, it's a fantastic strategy game. And it's a real-time strategy game if you've not played it. And it laid down a lot of the, the, kind of the precepts for real-time strategy that we take for granted now that you know, have always been here. They, they weren't always here. And, and they, they broke incredible new ground with, with Dune 2. Um, I actually wrote a piece for gamesindustry.biz on this. And uh, so there's a, if you go to bit.ly forward slash June Love, you, you created the bit. I did, yeah, that, sorry. Okay. You leave June me in charge of something for yeah. one thing. I was just like, you know, bit. well, I, L- I knew you might no, love the game, like, so. Yeah, June is great. <laughs> not but June anyway, Respects, no, but June no. Love. <laughs> so bit, bit.ly forward slash June Love. And you will be able to read that article if you're interested. It's, it's, it's worth a read, not because not I wrote it, but because it actually lays down in much more detail the things I'm talking about, about why Dune 2 is not only an amazing game, it's an important game. And if you're interested in how to make a game, looking at those important games is very important. So please do check that out. I don't think I've ever played it, actually. I'm not sure I've just definitely I've, put it on I've my to-do list. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. People. But you see, but again, I've played a lot of RTSs, so I assume that it's like, again, I'll probably play it and be like... It's it's the uh, as in you are RTS. <laughs> I, I it's think... the RTS before RTSs, as you know <laughs> I it. think we just got judged massively yeah. when Tom just said. Like, oh, Our estimation is just... <laughs> <laughs> well... How, how about yourself then, Matt? Uh, what are you going to So sign? my choice is going to be, uh, it's, it's quite an interesting one, um, Sid Meier's Alpha Century. Any of you played that? Mm-mm. No. So it was the one that came after, I think it was the third Civilization game, but it was the one where they go into space and you land on another on, on, a, on an alien planet and you are, what happens is there's, a, there's an assassination on the ship and it follows a very similar bracket for the, uh, follows a very similar bracket for the Civ games. Um, but instead of having like, um, instead of having the typical, oh look, you're the English and there's the Romans and there's the whatever else is, this one is everyone splits up after this assassination on the ship by their ideologies. So you you have people who are into their socialism and then you have people who are into capitalism and they all land on the planet and they all try and prove that they're the best ones at whatever thing it is and the story in it is amazing it's just it just follows that really simple thing but it's just got it's got mind worms it's got a talking planet it's got like oh, it's, I'm, I'm sold <laughs> It this is it's, amazing. It's, it's I did brilliant. Not... It's really, really good. I, I have an admission. Um, I've I've never played a Civ game. Get out. Should <laughs> I just leave? Yeah. yeah. This is unbelievable. Yeah. We're going to... Right, so, by the way, we're opening up intros. For... <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, like, um, ha- having worked with you guys so much now, it's like... 
you know, strategy games are really important to me. And I didn't know that until, until recently. I remember playing Total Annihilation on like uh, Windows 98 back in the day. And that, that blew my mind, that mm. game. I absolutely loved mm. it. Um, but, but a Civ game, it, I think if I took, if I played it now, I'd be like, yeah, okay, this is right on my street. I just, just haven't got round to it, I think. There'll be a lot of people who I think will argue that I shouldn't <laughs> recommend Alpha Centauri as the first <laughs> one to play. But... I, the, the thing that drags me is a story. I, I'm, I'm a guy who loves a narrative, loves a story. You you're not, not going to be working in marketing if you're not going to be doing something to do with words and, and stories and, and narratives and stuff like that. And, and the game just has it in spades while also being amazing strategy game at the same time. It's on, um, it's on good old games. You can get it for like four quid or something like that. I think it is. Yeah, it's you'll, you'll be able to pick up a Civ game for yeah. They are definitely playing a Civ game and mm. I, I won't step in necessarily recommend one. Uh, um, but... But yeah, definitely play a Civ game. Okay, okay, I shall, I shall. So, uh, if, if you have a favourite game and have any opinions on, on our choices, then uh, I would, we'd love to hear them. Just uh, give us a shout. You can follow us on all the social media platforms from here. But we're going to dive into what you're all here for today, which is the start of How to Make a Game. I would say one of the most important things about making a game, potentially, is... Um, starting a company to make a game. <laughs> and so that, that can start be... Start from the ground up. Start yeah. from the ground up. You know, start from the core bit from here. So um, this is why Thomas is here with us today to talk with us about uh, why why we are all here, why Auroch Digital exists as a company today. So would you like... I, we have a couple of questions we'd like to ask around the company itself. Yeah. But um, can you tell us why did you why did you set Auroch Digital up in 2010? What was the, what was the aim? Um, well, so it... I was actually, at the time I was working on um, uh, Call of Cthulhu, The Wasted Land with another sort of studio I'd co-founded called Red Wasp. And I was actually doing a bunch of consultancy work uh, for places like the Wellcome Trust uh, and, and, and other people. And basically I needed a company because they, they, they paid companies, not individuals. So very quickly I needed a company and I was working with my wife on it at the time. So we set up Auroch Digital then without really realizing that, yeah, sort of, you know, many years later, it would become, you know, it would grow, you know, at a reasonable rate and become what it is today. So it, it was set up out of expediency, but obviously uh, over time it's it's grown into something much bigger than that. Right, fair enough. And so um, where did the name Auroch come from? Because this is obviously a question that must people must ask quite a lot, where the name comes from. They, they do, and, and the canon reply is that, um, you know, it's a, a melding of, of something old and something new. And I, I think there's this idea of, you know, where everything was going digital and, you know, around the time we set it up, digital and E and, you know, E this, E that. It seemed like that that was the, the zeitgeist. Mm. But but I have always been and still am very fascinated by the prehistory. So I like the idea of taking something, Aurochs, uh, a thing that doesn't exist anymore. And at the time there was talk about, you know, rewilding them and merging it with a, a, a more new word, digital. Um, the the bit we can cut from this later is um, that... Uh, I missed the S off Aurochs. And I tell, I tell, I've told people like, oh yeah, I deliberately changed the spelling of it to like separate it out. So, you know, Beautiful. that's a really cool thing, but we'll totally cut that. <laughs> it, uh, here's a fun fact for you. I wrote, a, um, I wrote a, an essay about um, migration patterns of 
aurochs in uh, Poland <laughs> in really? my university. Yes, when I was studying at university. So I knew what it was when That's I was That's really specific. It is, that yes. Is... I went to... Uh, so I did archaeology and ancient history. <laughs> my, so uh... You didn't mention that one in the job interview. Because, no, no. I mean, you've got, <laughs> you've got like a, a tattoo of Cthulhu on your arm, yes. which was like a big selling point <laughs> in you. the interview. Thank you very much. <laughs> the fact that you didn't... You, like, the that interview was, like, was rubbish, by the way, after. <laughs> the, you could have... Yeah, I could have said, oh, by the way, I know, I know a ton about aurochs. <laughs> I, I know about migration patterns of Aurochs, well, suppose, more than most people, <laughs> most people know what they are. So, and, which is why it's glad you said that S bit because that has worried. That has, I wondered why we didn't have an S. <laughs> at the end. <laughs> by the end of this podcast, I want to know at least one trivial fact about the, the migration pattern. Oh, it's not much aurochs. exciting. Well, it was actually. Well, I just want to know something. It was actually more to do with how different um, animals move in different patterns in different ways, and you could track that through like areas of land and stuff like that, and see where yeah. dead ones were and okay. stuff like that. That was that yeah. was that was the thing behind it. So it was it was I picked that one as an example, and then ten years later, here I am. You know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if to. I mean, just just to let listeners know. So if you don't know what an aurochs is, it's it's basically that the. the the earlier version of cows. So we think of cows as these very domesticated, very, you know, um, well, super domesticated, you know, just exist for us to farm and, you know, eat. Um, but they weren't always that, that like the previous incarnation were, were aurochs, which were these huge wild creatures. They were still bovine-ish. I mean, I, I don't know enough about the biology and the genealogy of them, but it, it's this idea that a thing you know about a, a cow and you think, well, that's that's just a normal everyday thing but no it's part of this bigger longer history that goes back and at one point these were dangerous wild beasts mm, mm. that people you know because they're massive horns well, yeah yeah they're very wary of like, yeah. you know our, yeah our, our ancestors hunting those things had to be incredibly cautious around them because you know a, a wound would could very easily kill and even if it didn't kill you it could leave you maimed to the, without any medical technology you know you're in real trouble so i think aurochs to me again represent that idea of the kind of danger of the wilderness which also when you're creating stuff is you know slightly arty way of looking at it is you're trying to step back into that territory of how do we do something that's a bit different how do we how do we you know try out new things that don't quite work and so again often you're you're trying to come up with ideas that both the the player can relate to so they get what you're doing but at the same time they've got that edge that's something new maybe something familiar but unfamiliar it, it, it's a weird dichotomy but in fact let, let, let's just cut everything i said about it <laughs> no no we'll I, put no, that bit on as what, <laughs> what the name though. means yeah I, I, totally that's I, the new canon i was gonna say i think that and yes that is gonna be how we <laughs> we talk that's how i'm certainly gonna talk about it in the future but it's there's an interesting sideline there because you talk about this brand new like you know heading into this dangerous new world and having to take dangerous risks and stuff like that from it but the the thing i think is quite interesting as well is i have been doing a little bit of research in the history of uh Auric digital in terms of our the games we have produced and um i have a quiz question you're not allowed to answer it thomas because <laughs> you should know the answer but, I, I but, so is this for me then matthew, matthew the oh, question man. for you so the question is do you know how many games Auric digital has made um uh, the short answer is no. Okay. I could not give you an exact number, but take, I will... Take a good guess. I'll hazard a guess. Um, somewhere between 30 and 40. Ooh, it's close. That's a bit of a wild guess, it's to be honest. It's actually... Do you want me to... Just, I, I don't know. know. So, yeah, it's 30. 30. 30 games. We've made 30 games in our time. Now, this includes... Now, and this is this is, is where... Is all, this you going back through our website and looking? Uh, there was, there's a big spreadsheet. <laughs> oh, right, right. There's a big spreadsheet with key, lots of stuff key. in it that I was keying through. Because it brought up two games that I haven't asked Thomas about separately, but I'm going to now on podcast, which is Moral Combat and Loot Hero. 
and why Loot Hero isn't the main thing that we do. <laughs> uh, well, That's L-U-T-E yeah, so they, Hero, yeah. by the way. <laughs> so they are both... They are both uh, so, so Moral Combat was uh, one of our first news games during the Obama-Romney election campaign, and it was an idea of a game where you were trying to... Yeah, moral as in it's, it's a riff on Mortal Combat, you know, and obviously, you know, politics... Politicians like to talk about moral themes, so it was, you know, that was the idea. Uh, and, it, you know, you you were trying to get your candidate voted in. Uh, so it has some elements of a kind of fighting game with a, you know, kind of energy bar and who's going to win two combatants. But it's actually kind of around the debate. So you're not actually fighting. And then Loot Hero, we did uh, a few games for uh, Shakespeare's Globe. Uh, and one of those games was Loot Hero, which obviously is a riff on Guitar Hero. I was going to um, ask, actually, because I, um, I think that was the first game I ever worked on with, was with it? Oruk. Was yeah, it? yeah, it was um, Shakespeare's... Uh, the, yeah, you're right, it was like a series of mini-games. I forget the name of it. I should know that the first game <laughs> I ever worked on. But it's actually split, because it was either that or a game called Jungle Rampage, which is much easier to remember. Um, but yeah, that was one of the earlier ones, yeah. Interesting. Well, I was going to say, because those, those sort of games, obviously they were... Um, uh, are they indicative of how people get started in this sort of industry, do you think? Or is it... Because you look at some of the, the, the development steps and you look at big games that come out now. Is, are, are these sort of things, Moral Combat, Loot Hero, is that where most people get their start? Um, yes and no. I, I mean, I've been in the industry a long time, so a bit of a grizzled veteran of it. And, and o- over time, as the technology, as the distribution channels, and as the, the, the audiences have, have, have evolved then how you get into games has evolved along with it. So it's, it's yeah, and I don't think you're ever going to arrive at a, a point where you say this is how you get into games and it's a definitive route. There's probably as many routes in as there are people. But what I think those sort of early games we did do represent is when you're a smaller studio uh, or, or when you're trying to make your name as a studio, you do tend to do, uh, well, we've found anyway, we've we done... And this is not the first studio I've founded, so you know I've, I've done it a couple of times before. You do a wide variety of stuff because you're trying to find, you're trying to make money because obviously you, you need to make a living doing it, and you're also trying to find what it is as a studio you're good at. You're trying to find your mojo, uh, and so yeah, I think I think it's good to do those sort of little things to practice your art, practice your technique. Um, so yeah, th- those early games helped us establish some of our thinking around how we create games and some of that is still with us in fact you know there's a the game the news project wrote a piece on the game the news site recently um where i look back at what we did and how that's influenced the the kind of dna of us as a company uh, uh, game the news is a great example to talk about because obviously that was a, a a big success um it got quite a lot of attention and quite a lot of interest on it um have an anecdotal story I've been told about Endgame Syria and uh, your email inbox. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, How much detail do you want to go into yeah. there? Well, uh, yeah, so, so Endgame Syria we obviously did um, back in 2012, I think. Um, and that was a f- like, that was taking on a, a real-world topic, and it's still a real-world topic. Unfortunately, years later, that, that war still rumbles on. Um, and our, our attempt was to kind of make sense of it using the medium of games. and. You know, the rationale for that is, you know, if if I was a filmmaker, I might make a film about it. If I was a songwriter, I might sing a song about it. But I'm a games designer. So the natural way I express things in the world that either interest me or I feel are important is through the medium of games. So it, it was a controversial game in the sense that there was plenty of people who pushed back against the idea of using a game to cover 
a war. It was like it was you know there, there was a small number of voices said it's just wrong. Like the our me our medium of gaming is intrinsically about fun and frivolous and you know that that it cannot be used to talk about a serious topic and and I rejected that then and I rejected that now. So we you know we we took a stand and we we made the game and you know Apple refused to put it on the iTunes uh, and that that itself became a big story about you know what what do Apple consider acceptable in terms of forms of expression because my point always was they're not banning it because of what we said if we did some horrendous hateful thing within the game i get why they might not want it on their platform but we didn't we were very respectful to the source material it was the fact that it was a game that was causing the friction not what we were saying and my point was always judge by what it is what the content is not the medium and i think uh, you know interesting looking back now over you know sort of what we are 8 years on from making that and and that 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 window has definitely shifted where games are considered i would i would argue now by the wider culture we are well on the way if not there and you know people can debate this a little bit that games are both considered uh, an acceptable form to talk about serious topics and also are you know not every game is art but games can be art and i think they're very important advances in games as a, as a medium and it's it's great to see and i'm very excited to see games considered in the same framework that people consider film or uh, the novel or you know music do you think that um if the if the stars aligned to go back to a game like that um something like it or maybe even that that same source material would you ever approach that again if so like how how would you approach that differently with that experience like but basically like returning almost like doing a sequel or something of sorts you know how would you go back to that source material and do it differently I don't know that it's difficult to say because at the time everything you're doing is is of its time it's very hard to say how you do it differently you know what what we knew then was what we knew then um I think it's more what what's been interesting is so new, news games as a business model hadn't really worked out how I thought it would so we we've still done some and you know we 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 managed to both make our mark as a studio and uh, learn much more about our trade build up some experience and and we did make some you know some income from doing that but very little most of that was done out of the the the, the interest and the desire to use our medium in an interesting way what it has done is it meant as I say I, I think the more useful thing to think about is how has it impacted us now and so you look at games in production like Mars Horizon and that idea of real world impacts real world thinking is baked into the DNA of that. Um we obviously partnered with the UK Space Agency on Mars Horizon and and that's no accident. That's not us making a game and then thinking uh somebody approaching us and then us slotting it in and we didn't really think about it. I've consciously thought about how do we make this game and how do we partner with people who know the real stuff? How do we make that game more authentic? But but there's a kind of core of authenticity that runs through it that I think makes the game stronger as a result. And do you think do you think many other studio? I mean, uh, and I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of the industry as a whole here, but it's like, but do you think <laughs> do you think many studios follow that sort of mantra, or or are we quite unique in that way? In that in that that we do try and keep that that realism to it. So. I don't want to get into Rockstar's horse genitalia debate and this and the other, but like, but, but whether That's or not, not that that realism is 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 essential to a games or whether it is that fun part of it. Um, yeah, I, I've done a couple of talks about realism in games, and I think you know maybe if if 
people are interested, it could be a whole future topic for a podcast because as a games designer, it's a really interesting question. And we, we dance around realism, I, I would say. So sometimes you can be hyper-realistic and other times not. So if you take, there's loads of military shooters, you know, everything from your Call of Duties to your battlefields and stuff like that. In some areas, they are hyper-realistic. So when they model a gun, that gun looks like that. It often has the right sounds to it. They've often recorded the actual sounds of that gun shooting, the number of bullets it carries in the chamber. It, that's hyper-accurate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Well. They, they, they can be hyper-accurate depending on the game. And I've worked on a few um, games with that sort of content. So I, I can speak from experience of making them, how much time and effort is, has gone in to make that accurate. But the bit that's not accurate is in the game, you get shot a couple of times, you just duck around <laughs> yeah. the corner, yeah. wait till your health resuscitates and then go back in. That's not realistic. If you're actually shot a couple of times, you are very unlikely to keep going. Mm. Um, so so we, we, we pick the realism we want and we ignore the realism we don't. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Remember, yeah. we are making a medium for people to engage with. And, you know... The, the point of games is to, to well, one of the points of games is to give people experiences they wouldn't otherwise have. Um, I'm sure most people will not be involved in the First World War because, you know, I think all the veterans from it are, lo- are no longer with us. So uh, games give us some sense of that. They give us a topic we can key into. And I think that's where it's about being respectful to the source material rather than necessarily hyper-accurate. And that's why I say authentic rather than yeah. historically accurate because... You know, when we talk about historically accurate, that that itself is a, is a is a difficult thing to be. Mm, mm. Well, whose history? What's the history yeah. we're accepting yeah. as canon? What what's the bit? Uh, and history, like anything else, is constantly changing. We make new discoveries. The technology moves on. You know, the, there's different disciplines that allow them to recover documents they couldn't previously read or find out stuff about that age through scientific advancements that you know that they didn't know. So so all these things are constantly shifting. And I, I, I think what I'm interested in doing is making games that that allow us to express our interest in that through the authenticity of what we do, which sounds a very long-winded way of saying uh, we put stuff that we think is interesting and fascinating into our games. And, and this is a this is a topic that's going to uh, come up in one of the one of the later things we want to talk about. But um, it, it's quite interesting that with the way you say that, and then then how we move that into the world of the stuff that we've done recently. So the games that we that, that we have produced of, of late. So the most prevalent one being Act on Cthulhu Tactics, um, yes. and 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 everything that's gone into that. I mean, how how do you make that? How do we make that 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 connection there between the well, so Act, Act on Cthulhu Tactics, again, it, it draws the authenticity from fer- various um, sources. So for anyone who's not seen the game, it's obviously, it's a, it's Modiphius created a role-playing game uh, about five years ago called Act, Act on Cthulhu, which took the idea that the Nazis and their fascination with the occult um, was real. And when they found the occult, it was the, the occult of the Cthulhu mythos of Lovecraft and others, Cthulhu mythos. And so they set about creating a, a universe where that was the reality. Um, again, it, there's realism in that they draw from real-world stuff in that. The, the, the narrative course of the Second World War is in there. The, the figures and units and machines and equipment and politics of the Second World War are in there. Um, and so we drew on that as well. But also you're creating a piece of entertainment, so you're diverging from where history was. One, the Cthulhu missile the true, and two, you know, how the war may or may not go. Um so, yeah, again, the, the, the DNA of that thinking about those authentic things is, is still in there. Um, but again, for me, you know, I, I'm, I've, I've been into 
um, Lovecraft's work and and others other writers that have you know uh, before and after him but for years so for me that's that's both something I'm interested in uh, and also something I you know really cared about and wanted to make so um, that and again that drives a lot of our work is is stuff that we care about there's very it's very it's certainly possible as a games designer to make a game about something you don't particularly care about you know games design is a is a craft you can do it if you need to do it do it and I, I don't disrespect anyone who's working on a project because you know that's how they make their ends meet or they're helping out a friend or whatever reason they might be if it's something that's not their passion project but we've been very lucky to be able to do a lot of the things that I really care about topics that I am fascinated by or games that I have love for and I, I suppose I mean you know you look at you look at how a lot of games sort of come out and how and how things do personally i feel you can see that in a game i think you can see something in a game when you can tell it somebody's passion or somebody's interest has has really gone into it because there's obviously a we go back to my point about um uh, alpha century that's not the blueprint and the model that would have gone into a traditional that's how a strategy game works but someone's gone i think this would be really cool if we added a really cool sci-fi element to it and, and and you could sense that someone's poured their love into it compared to something else where people hasn't haven't had that so uh, I'm going to put it really crudely. Um, a friend of mine, um, she is a painter decorator and um, it's just so, so, so passionate about it. Like it's just her thing. She did a psychology degree. This is related to what we're talking about. Um, but compared to me, I can paint. I could paint this room. It wouldn't be half as good as what, what, the way she does it, the way, the, the way it's cut in, the, 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 the kind of the choice of the paint, um, you know, the, the, the attention to detail when putting on different um, coats of paint or whatnot. I mean, it's a very crude example, but you, you can tell. I think there's so many, so many genres of games out there now and so many developers are, you know, kind of touching base with, with similar things. But you, you can tell that difference when that, when that lick of paint is just a little bit extra thick. Mm. You know what I mean, mm. Mm. Terrible, terrible example. No, 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 no. I think that's a really good point because I suppose, I suppose, then that 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 leads on to a nice, a nice next point, which is like, so if you are somebody who's doing that mercenary for hire stuff, and actually you want to be involved in something that's more your passion project, would you would you have any advice for them? Would you, if you're an experienced programmer? Potentially? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's I. There are there are always roots in I think, and if. I suppose the big thing would be to not to, to find the right time and space to do the thing you care about. Um, the, the, as I say, I, I think there's, you know, I've done, I, I wasn't always a games designer, so I've done a whole host of jobs from washing dishes to, you know, working in pubs to, you know, all, all sorts of boring stuff. And so I, I think you learn doing that, that, you know, income matters. Like you need to find your way of making your, your kind of ends meet. But while I was doing all those things, I was always doing other nerdy things. I was running D&D groups. I was, I was trying to make my own games. I was writing my own scenarios for Call of Cthulhu. I was, you know, so Sorry, it, it always... Sorry, the sideline here is I, uh, the tweet you put out where you wrote to Games Workshop. That's <laughs> <laughs> one, one of the nerdiest but cutest things, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, we, we can put a link out to it. That was, yeah, aged, uh, I forget, how oh, I must have been about 12, 14, somewhere around there. Adorable. Yeah, wrote, wrote some rules, some ship rules for... Warhammer Fantasy Battle and wrote Games Workshop and they wrote back. I, I guess with like, um, and, and this, this probably brings into a nice interesting point about like where you have that split between when you do a do an IP product and then you do something for yourself. Um, can you, I mean, because 
Acting Cthulhu is obviously borrowing from, like you said, from the Modiphius stuff. Chainsaw Warrior was taking that very, and and for those who don't know, Chainsaw Warrior was a was a was a game. Was it eighty? 88? 88, I think. Yeah. yeah, that it came out. But again, it's a, it's a, it's one of in the Games Workshop era of making big ball games, and then mm. they did the same with Dark Future and stuff like yeah. that. So those sort of ones are fine. But then, when do you, when do you, as a, as a, as a game designer, as, 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 a, as someone who's running the studio, say to yourself, "No, my ideas are the, are the ones to go forward. It's my time to do this." As well, this is where you butt up into the commercial realities of stuff. And, you know, uh, again, you, you'll see talks from people doing that inspiration. Yeah, do your thing, do your thing. And, you know, if, if you can do it. But at the same time, you know, making a game, certainly for us as a team effort, I, I can do game design, um, but I can't program I can program absolutely awfully. Um, I can't. I can't at do all. art. <laughs> Probably at least slightly yeah. better than what I can do. I can't do audio. <laughs> you know, there's loads of stuff I, I I don't know. So I need a team of people. Well, how do I how do I get the, the the funds to pay for that team of people? Well, I need some money. I need people to invest in a project. And and the bottom line is, from a commercial reality, it, it's easier to raise money to do something that's an existing IP than it is to do original IP simply because you can go to somebody who might give you some money, who might fund it like a publisher. And if you say, I've got this completely unique idea, there's risk there. There's a big risk. Well, it might not be, might not work out. Whereas if you go into them saying, well, there's this known thing, you already know it's good because it's already got a whole bunch of people who like it. That, that takes some of the risk out of it. All we do for us is the things we pick to, to, you know, to get investment against, to get publishers against, I pick things that I think are great. So I, I'd never, like all the projects we've done, um, you know, from Ogre, um, Aton Cthulhu Tactics, Chainsaw Warrior, I've pushed those. Like, I've found that project, talked to the person, said, I think there's a deal to be done here, and made that happen. And I only do that with stuff that I really care about. Um, I, I, so, yeah, we haven't made games about topics that I'm not particularly fussed about. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm not going to hope for a uh, 1950s <laughs> uh, sci-fi you know, space patrol type adventure game. <laughs> well, I, I think that that's the thing as, as us as a studio gives us more scope is it wouldn't necessarily have to be, I think there has to be a person on that project who cares, a person driving it forward. It doesn't necessarily have to be me anymore, which I'm, I'm happy to say our production processes are broad enough now that I, I don't have to be um, involved in every step of it, but it has to have somebody who cares you know, for that thing, somebody who holds the vision for it, somebody who gets what it is, why it's cool and why people are going to want to play it. Well, I suppose that maybe therein is, is, is another point about like the passion for the, for, the, for the thing you're doing rather than necessarily just your own passion for it. You might have a community of people who love it. For, I mean, <laughs> not that this would ever happen, but imagine if Sports Interactive turned around and just went, cool, um, Auric Digital, do you mind making the next Football Manager game for us? Well, well, I've, I've actually played Football Manager games and like them. I don't particularly like football. Years ago, I think when I was really little, I briefly you know, liked football, but not very long. But um, I've played football management games and really enjoyed them. And it's the strategy thing that draws me in. Like the, the subject matter is less important than the gameplay. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can see why people like that. And, and I can get excited about the mechanics and the gameplay, even if the subject matter isn't the thing that particularly grabs mm-hmm. me. So basically, yes, Sports Interactive, we can make the next one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, well, I, w- I would make a sport manager. And again, I remember playing uh, like a Formula One racing manager game. I forget what it was on. I think it was on the, let's say a friend had a, 
uh, an Amstrad, and I can't even remember what the game was, but it was this this Formula One racing manager where you manage the team, and then during the race, the cars come in, you've got to pick the tyres, you've got to do the tyre change as quick as you can. And and you know, like four of us, three, four of us would sit around playing this as a kind of as a kind of head-to-head, local head-to-head game. Absolutely loved it. And again, I'm not particularly interested in Formula One racing. I don't follow it. I'm not particularly interested in cars. But it was a great game. The gameplay was great. The management thing. Uh, and again, it's it's find the thing that grabs somebody and, and then make that the whole of that's, it. That's often me. That's often the, the real crux of the gameplay. Like um, I used to play a lot of um, football management games and whatnot. But before you even get to the match... The real enjoyment comes from all the prep work that you've done. Like you've read up stats, like who's, oh, that person's injured or can't do that, can't do this, bought this, or I want to try this new player. That's already great. That's what's also so great about, um, you know, some of the games that we're working on at the moment, um, like take Mars Horizon, for example. You know, it's, it's about kind of launching something into space um, to get it to Mars, you know, and there's a lot of prep work that goes into before that. So kind of launch day is super exciting, but it's all about those moving parts that you that you kind of take hold and take under your wing before you even hit mm, that button. Mm, hit that button. Mm. And I suppose, and 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 therein, I suppose, therein lies your the point you were making first, which is that actually, if you can meld the two—a passion for something and a and the real science and that community mm. thing behind it—then you can actually produce something that. Yeah, yeah, something that you can be really proud of, mm. uh, and yeah, it's good, I suppose to kind of. For me to sum up the, the kind of point you said about what do you pursue, the, the thing that's going to make you money or the thing that's going to drive your passion, uh, I think if you if you're going to end up with a you know a, a career where you make a bunch of games, don't don't feel you've got to rush into one. I, I think first and most importantly is to get your craft down, get good at what it is you do. I have chatted with plenty of people in the industry, you know, especially when they come into it and they're like, yeah, but I've got this burning game I really want to make, uh, and I'm not the first, certainly not the first person to offer this advice. Well, fine, don't make it your first game. Like, because yeah, yeah. the first few games you make, yeah, yeah. you are learning your craft, and you're probably not going to be great at it, or certainly not as good as you you hope to get later. Uh, yeah, and having been a games designer for a long time, you definitely pick up skills and techniques and tricks and you know approaches and and ways you can flip things that you didn't have. You accrue an, a, a a library of experience, each of which becomes a little tool in your toolbox as a games designer. Um, and sure, some game designers are, are you know, are, after their first game are just fantastic at what they do. And, you know, they've just got a real natural affinity to it, whereas other people have to work at it. But the end result is experience definitely brings you more tools in your toolbox. Um, so wh- whatever your passion is and whatever the game you really want to make, you'll have time to get there. So don't necessarily make it your first not even your second, you know, do other things, work with other people, build that toolbox so that when you come to make the thing you absolutely care about, you've actually got more than the passion, you've also got the skill and the craft behind you as well. So, um, okay, I've got, I've got two questions that we can close the, close the show out here. So, so one, one of them's a, a bigger one, and then the second one's more a fun one. So the, 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 the first one, the bigger one, is, is there a, a, a title or a concept or something that you would just absolutely say no way to as a, as, as a studio? I mean, of, uh, within the realms of, like, you know, obviously, I don't think we do a weird overt bizarre twitch unfriendly dating simulator or a uh neo-nazi hey there's, there's a market for everything i was gonna say is <laughs> yeah i mean i i, I yeah the, the i wouldn't want to do anything that was like made the world a shitter place like who would want to be involved in something like that something that's just powered by just 
hate or something like that. It's just tedious. I, I wouldn't want to do that. But that that's really the the outlier extreme. I, I would be I would be happy to entertain a discussion about making a game on almost any topic, um, because I think there's always something interesting in just about everything. So when we did Endgame, so after we launched one of our news games, I want to say it's Endgame Syria. Um, I did an interview on BBC World Service. And just around then, the I think it was the Sandy Hook shootings had just happened, and that like that you know, and so the interviewer on the radio said, you know, and while I challenge you now, this this awful news is coming out about this shooting. What would you do with that? You know, like there, I got you, and and I I replied and said, well, what about a game about the emergency responders? What about you play the people trying to trying to you know stop this That's happening again or yeah what, what about the ambulance crews trying to save lives there's, there's loads of stories within there which could themselves become games so i i think every topic is conceivably turnable into something interesting it depends on you know what what's the hook what's the thing that grabs you so yeah you know who would have thought papers please uh, a game about being a, <laughs> yeah, an, so an immigration official <laughs> so would true. be great and it, you know i'm go, in fact going through customs going into the u.s to a steam dev days and this this huge copper who was like the, the immigration official where you go in uh, and, you know, he was kind of processing my passport and that. And, you know, they're, they're, they're a little bit austere, the, these sort of things. So I tried to make light of it and said, oh, there's a game about your job called Papers, Please. And he looked at me quite weird. And, and I, I bet he didn't expect that conversation. I would have to have been a fire on the wall. You know, the, the, the best bit about that was the, the return journey. Um, a slight anecdotal thing. So that was when Steam had announced Steam Boxes. And, and they gave every one of us who were there as developers, they gave us a free Steam box, which physically was these these black cubes. I think we still got it in the office, a black cube running the Steam OS. Uh, and everybody got one and a Steam controller. And so on the return flight, obviously going back through the security at the airport, uh, Seattle, whatever the airport was, I think it's Seattle, um, going through, there was loads of people all dressed in slightly casual clothes as developers tend to wear of... of and all of them had these weird black cubes. Oh, and security so were getting a little bit like, why, why is everybody carrying a box this strange? Because it didn't look like a normal PC at first glance. Uh, and they got a little bit freaked until they realized what it was. <laughs> there you go. So, so traveling is also important. Yeah. Say, yeah. um, so the, the, the final question I'll ask then. So it's uh, um, Merlin, whoever, I pop down and I say, right, so you can have any game you want. What are we making? Unlimited budget unlimited money you do you know get as many voice actors as you want you can get the what whoever absolutely whoever what would you do well i'm going to give a shit answer which is uh i'm going to say I, I think that's actually a really bad idea because i i have actually know i actually know of people who through the fortuitousness of having you know done very well get resources to make something else and um that lack of limits actually becomes creatively quite hard. Um, it, in many ways, it's the limitations on time or resources. Yeah, they absolutely do hamstring you, and they do make you make decisions that you wouldn't make if you had more space and time for it. But at the same time, they're also a kind of a, a rock on which you sharpen your creativity. So I think that unlimitedness um, is not a good thing. Uh, and as to what would we do, Watch this space. You know, we, we we have some very interesting news coming. I think we're in a really exciting position as a company to be doing some very cool things. So, yeah, 
subscribe to the podcast and watch this space for the second part that, of that answer. That is, that is an excellent sideline into the end of our, into the end of this episode. So, so yeah, as, as, as Thomas just said, then, you know, you can follow us on all the different, um, on your favorite podcasting apps. I'm sure there's some terrible ones that also host us as well. So you can search on there. We're on all the social medias. We are, we're not on Pinterest. That's the one thing I always say on stream. I don't think we've got Pinterest, but we were having this discussion before. Do you think we might be? Oh, no, I, I think I made one for Red Wasp Design. I, okay, I, good. We, I, we don't have one, no. Okay, Auric so. Digital does not have a Pinterest, thank but you can follow us Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. You can also follow us on all the streaming services as well. Um, Matthew, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate no it. Thank you. Thomas, thank you for joining us as yeah, well. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'm Matt as well. So we're just going to say a big thank you very much. Goodbye and see you on our next episode. I, I thought I was waving into the ether <laughs> thing because it's a podcast. But actually, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll be able to see us. You can see us waving. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs>